Now, uh, I have here a little bit of shameless self-promotion because I've got there the front cover of my new book, uh, which is now available for pre-order online, folks. Uh, coming out in September through Amazon and so on. It's called Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. Uh, I won't tell you much about it other than uh, it gives uh, a cumulative case of five different arguments for understanding Jesus the Christian way, uh, which are the arguments I think Jesus and his disciples themselves used. And I think they're all the arguments that there are as well. I haven't been able to think of a a different one. Uh, And I basically break it up into... uh, the paradox of Jesus' self-understanding in the context of his character and deeds, which is uh, often popularly known as the lunatic liar lord argument. Um, then I look at uh, Jesus' miracles, uh, judged against standard New Testament criteria of historicity, separate off the resurrection as a particularly significant miracle. And I think the miracles both... Um, sharpen the dilemma of Jesus' character and his claims because some, a lot of the miracles actually are sort of enacted claims to divinity when you look at them in context. And they're also obviously good things, so they speak to his character. But the resurrection is of particular significance. Uh, I then look at his fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy uh, and work out some of the very sort of conservatively estimated um, figures on the likelihood or indeed unlikelihood of him fulfilling various prophecies by chance alone. Uh, Consider, you know, did he purposefully manipulate these things in order to fulfill them and try and exclude things that could have been purposefully manipulated and still end up with um, just 27 prophecies, I think it is, one chance in 10 to the power of 32 as a sort of rough estimate Mm -hmm. of how unlikely it was. That's about the same number as there are grains of sand on the planet. Um, so quite long odds and then I look at contemporary religious experience in connection with Jesus and Christian spirituality but the third way here uh, aping Aquinas' five ways for God of course is Jesus' resurrection and just like uh, Craig and uh, fellow apologist Gary Habermas who takes this approach and Michael Lincona as well who's got a new book out that's on the bookstall that I would recommend um I'll take what's called a minimal facts apologetic to this. So it's saying, I'm, I'm not, although I do argue in the book for, as Craig would, the general reliability of the New Testament documents and so on, that they're generally historically reliable if you just treat them as historical documents. We don't need to argue that in order to argue for the resurrection or Jesus' self-understanding, because we could say, even granting that these reports are not generally reliable we can have various historical, standard historical criteria which are capable of of picking out the golden nuggets of reliable information from even generally unreliable reports. Um, You know, things like, is the same bit of information reported independently by different sources? Do they report things that are embarrassing to their own case? Um, do their enemies in other documents admit the same facts and so on and we can establish enough data using those kind of criteria uh, from which to argue that the best explanation of that set of data we've established is a genuine resurrection from the dead Um, so we um, sort of bypass in a sense the, the question of the general historical reliability of scripture which is not at all to say that we're accepting that scripture is unreliable. Mm-hmm. We're just saying, okay, let me just argue using the kind of data that even sceptical biblical scholars would generally agree upon 
and then argue from that basis. I notice here uh, that the common structure and content of the disciples' testimony about the resurrection can be firmly established by these parallel independent testimonies uh, contained within the pre-Pauline creed of 1 Corinthians 15, a passage that many scholars say goes back within years, if not months, of the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, The pre-Markan passion narrative of Mark 15 which is, uh, according to many, an earlier source incorporated later into Mark's Gospel, so that puts it very early. Mark is the earliest Gospel, of course. Peter's Pentecostal sermon in Acts 2 and Paul's sermon in Acts 13. And it can be argued that these sermons, um, for example, uh, seem to easily translate back into the Aramaic from the Greek that they're now presented in and are probably at least summaries, early summaries of what was... Uh, said uh, at the time and then were then incorporated into so they're drawing on earlier information than than the book itself and you can parallel these four accounts and see very clearly the pattern of Christ died breathed his last was put to death asked Pilate to have him executed he was buried Joseph placed in a tomb Uh, David died and was buried his tomb's here to this day wherein Peter implies that Jesus' tomb is empty, while David is still in his tomb. They took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb. He was raised, leaving an empty tomb. He's risen. God's raised this Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Within the religious context, raised here would mean nothing else than left behind an empty tomb. The body was raised, literally stood up again. Uh, Resurrection. And he appeared... He's gone ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. We are all witnesses of this fact. For many days he was seen by those. So this pattern of died, buried, empty tomb, seen by witnesses who are now telling you about it, um, is established from very early and independent sources. Uh, Giza Vermez, who's a Jewish New Testament scholar, basically saying... um, it's a puzzle. The idea of resurrection of the dead was a latecomer in Jewish thought, only occupied a small area of the religious canvas of the times, whereas the New Testament completely changed this perspective by having an individual resurrection of one Jew within history rather than the general resurrection of the dead at the end of history, which some Jews had come to believe in during the intertestamental period. It's, and this story of one Jew being raised from the dead, he says, set in time and space, integrated into history, it's profoundly perplexing, and the historian must come to grips with this puzzle. So uh, he doesn't believe in the resurrection, but he recognises that there's historical data that is puzzling concerning it. A uh, very quick video of Professor Gary Habermas, who's an expert on this, talking about uh, resurrection. Our guest is Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the world's foremost experts on the resurrection. Dr. Habermas, it's good to have you with us. Listen, I know that uh, a lot of people are skeptical about the resurrection, and you've dedicated your life to defending that. If you had, literally, a brief amount of time to be able to defend it, what would you say uh, defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know, I guess I would start with my method, and the method I use is 
I would say, I would challenge a skeptic, and I would say, I can take skeptical data, that skeptical uh, Bible scholars. Now, we're, we're talking specialists, because, you know, the skeptic's response is going to be, oh, I, I don't believe anything. But, I mean, if you talk to a, 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 someone who's as skeptical as they are, but they're well-trained in biblical studies, I will take their data, which they concede, because they all concede about the exact same thing. My argument is, I can take the data they concede and show the resurrection happened from their basis. So it looks something like this. If the Bible's inspired, Jesus is raised from the dead. If the Bible's not inspired, but it's just reliable, Jesus is raised from the dead. And if it's neither inspired nor reliable, if the New Testament is not reliable, you can still get these facts and Jesus is raised from the dead. So the bottom line is, Jesus is raised from the dead no matter what your view of scripture is, which I call a heads I win tails you lose argument. Now, the, if I only could pick one argument for the resurrection, I'd say it's this one. Virtually every critical scholar writing, I mean, we're saying 98, 99% would concede something like this. The earliest followers of Jesus had experiences which they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. They'd concede that. And here's my point. If they had real experiences, and if you cannot disprove it with the naturalistic theory, which I will which I will gamble they won't be able to do. But if you have real experiences and you can't explain them away, then what you have is the best explanation for that is that Jesus really appeared to them. That would be the one evidence. If I could only use one, I would take with it. So I would use I would use their method, their data, to show this one argument. And if they can't get away with it with the naturalistic evidence that are a hypothesis that what you have is an actual resurrection appearances. Thank you very much. So different lists of these uh, bits of data that would be generally accepted are given, but you can narrow it down to, say, three or four uh, bits of data that uh, represent a consensus of relevant scholars, whatever their worldview, um, which is something that sort of helps us eliminate sort of a bias from the data selection. But even more importantly, they're evidenced by standard historical criteria, usually by multiple different tests of reliability. This is called the minimal facts apologetic. And it would be things like Jesus died on the cross. Jesus' body was buried in a tomb. That tomb was soon after found to be empty. And then various individuals and groups of people, crucially, had experiences in which they sincerely believed a resurrected Jesus interacted with them. Now, obviously, those bits of data are, in a sense, logically compatible with Christianity being false. You don't have to be a Christian to accept this data. But the argument is that once you accept this data, the best explanation of it is going to be a genuine resurrection rather than any of the competing explanations. And if you approach this data with a without assuming that, say, miracles are impossible because, say, you assume that there is no God and you're so fundamentally committed to that belief that no amount of evidence would convince you that a miracle had happened because, well, of course, you know that miracles can't happen. So if you have at least some openness to the possibility of a miracle happening 
then you might well be driven to say that, okay, a miracle is the best explanation here and should be accepted. So it's an argument, again, that's going to perhaps be more powerful if you're approaching this data, say, as an agnostic or believing in some kind of a god would be uh, even further forward. Or if you already believed in the Jewish god, that would be further forward. Or even if you're an atheist, but you, 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 you might say, you know, I'm 70% sure there's no God. But I'm not 100% sure. So people's starting points are going to affect where they come out here. Um, but as uh, part of a cumulative case, if you're prepared to, ex- to say data is going to move me at all, as part of a cumulative case, that overall case might shift you f- far enough. Whether or not any individual bit is going to be enough on its own. So in my book, I say, you know, say you start off as a, a committed to a naturalistic worldview, but you're, you're not going to be so dogmatic about it that you're, you're going to say, well, I'm not, it's not even worth considering evidence to the contrary. Let me show you the lunatic liar lord argument. You think there's some weight to that argument, but it doesn't convince you that Jesus is lord. But it has kind of soaked up some of your scepticism. You're now slightly less sure about Christianity being false than you were before you'd heard this argument. Now let me give you another argument. Repeat, repeat, repeat. How far have you moved? Well, partly that that depends on how strong you think the the overall case is, but also where you end up depends partly on where you began. So you would subsume it, and and indeed Craig would, within uh, an overall case, but I think it's a very strong argument in and of itself. You can establish this data by kind of secular standard historical criteria and then argue. Uh, so I won't take time to establish them. There's plenty of literature that you can go to in the book and the website and so on. Um, but we'll, for time's sake, we'll take that agreed data. And I've got you know, quotes from um, liberal scholars like Gerd Ludemann and so on saying Jesus was obviously buried and so on and so forth. Um, the rubber really hits the road Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is a hugely important passage here because it's very early testimony Um, but I've talked a little bit about that and the real thing when it comes when we move from that consensus of scholarship to how we interpret the data so this is N.T. Wright summarising and he says historical investigation brings us to the point where we must say that the tomb previously housing a thoroughly dead Jesus was empty and his followers saw and met someone they were convinced was this same Jesus bodily alive though in a new transformed fashion what's the best explanation of those facts right in his very thick study on the topic says the historian may and must say that all the other explanations for why Christianity arose and took the shape it did are far less convincing as historical explanations than the one the early Christians themselves offer, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And he reckons that the sort of reasoning historians characteristically employ, that's inference to the best explanation, tested rigorously in terms of things like the explanatory power uh, of the hypothesis, points strongly towards the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I like putting it like this. You'll have perhaps heard of Occam's razor. It's often talked about in science. Um, choose the simplest adequate explanation. If you've got competing explanations for data, and they all explain the data, but one of them's simpler than the others, 
then you believe the simpler adequate explanation. But you don't pick the simplest explanation if it's not adequate, because that's just a simplistic explanation. So it's more important that the explanation's adequate, but then if they're equally adequate, simplicity comes in as a kind of tiebreaker. Well, think of it this way. The resurrection, if Jesus really was raised from the dead by God as a miracle, that would clearly be an adequate explanation of the agreed data. If Jesus was raised from the dead, having been killed, then we would expect the data that we have about him being killed, being buried, that tomb being empty later because he's been raised from the dead, and people meeting him later because he's been raised from the dead. So it's an adequate explanation. There is no simpler and or more adequate explanation on the market. Um, Giza Mermez, who I quoted earlier, said it looks at six different proposed explanations for the resurrection. And he says, all in all, none of the six suggested theories stands up to stringent scrutiny. These are all alternatives. He doesn't give an alternative. He ends up sort of saying, well, I don't know what happened, but it sure wasn't a resurrection because, you know... That kind of stuff can't happen, can it? But I've got no alternative explanation to offer. Um, Philosopher Charles Hartshorn, having decided already to reject all miracle claims out of hand, comments, It is remarkable that a crucified man should have been the source of so vast a company of believers. I cannot explain this convincingly. Anthony Flew Uh, said, I don't think it's possible to offer any satisfactory naturalistic account of what happened. Um, Craig, and I think Michael Locona is tightening up on the methodology of this as well, puts forward, uh, again, generally accepted the kind of criteria you find in any secular work of history to test historical explanations, things like explanatory scope, how many bits of data does the one hypothesis take into account uh, explanatory power if it happened would it make that data probable um, is it plausible in context is it um, ad hoc or contrived are you just making up um, extra details that you've got no independent evidence of in order to make your explanation work and he basically says well in the case of the resurrection okay you'd have to believe that there's a god But if you already believe in a God when you approach this data, you don't even have to add add the existence of God as part of your explanation. That's that's already part of your background knowledge. Um, Particularly, does it outstrip any rival hypotheses in meeting these kinds of conditions? Um, Probably the leading competitor as an explanation for the data would draw on some sort of hallucination explanation. Um, but that has very poor explanatory scope. Craig said, the hallucination hypothesis says nothing to explain the empty tomb. Okay, if, if people and groups say have hallucinations of a resurrected Jesus, but why was the tomb empty? A hallucination doesn't explain that, so it doesn't cover all the data. You need another explanation. You need, need another, mm-hmm. yeah. So it becomes more complicated. Um, the hallucination hypothesis says nothing to actually to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection says Craig, if you look at the context, it says, for someone in the ancient world, visions of the deceased are not evidence that the person is alive, but evidence that he's dead. You know, they they would have said something like, you know, I've met his ghost. 
And indeed, some, some of the reports, when they saw Jesus uh, walk you know, on water, they oh, it's his ghost! You know, he's, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Or um, when they're praying for Peter in jail, and Lydia goes to the door and answers the door, and she comes back and says, it's Peter, it's Peter, he's at the door! And they all say, oh, it's his ghost. Or it's his angel, it's his... You know, oh, he's copped it, you know, even though we're praying for his release. <laughs> of, um, why did they not simply having, you know, out of grief, say, hallucinated Jesus? Why didn't they not sort of say, oh, you know, we've, we've had this vision of Jesus in the bosom of Abraham, showing that God has, has really accepted him, even though he died under the curse of God on a cross. Um, why would they suddenly go against this, their belief system, which... Yeah, might have allowed for believing in a general resurrection at the end of the universe, but had no concept of an individual human being, let alone a crucified one, being raised to new life in the middle of history without the end of the world happening. (laughs) Um, Hallucination doesn't really seem to cover that shift in religious perspective. Uh, C.S. Lewis points out the poor explanatory power of the hypothesis as well. He says any theory of hallucination breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions this hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus and that's recorded in both Luke and John so literally in independent sources record experiences of meeting the resurrected Jesus wherein people didn't recognize Jesus as Jesus at first so if you're going to hallucinate the dearly departed in some sort of grief-stricken or some sort of, oh yes, God has, you know, has vindicated him after all and meeting him resurrected would prove that kind of thing. Why, why does your mind make up a hallucination that you don't recognise as being Jesus? It's kind of, at the very least, a bit odd, isn't it? doesn't really seem to, to fit. So as I say, any process of coming to understand reality is going to involve, big phraseology here, hermeneutical dialogue, a sort of interplay between your spirituality, including your worldview, what criteria of a good explanation you you accept, you work by, um, the data set that you admit, and then how you interpret or try and explain deductively or inductively that set of data. And different people will start at different places and will agree or disagree about the criteria and so on. But I think the argument here is that if you, if you at least start with a spirituality that's open to the possibility of miracles, you accept criteria of theory choice that are widely accepted, seem to be reasonable in and of themselves, are not partisan to one worldview or another. You can establish a set of data that pretty clearly by standard criteria again of theory choice point in the direction of a genuine resurrection being the best explanation it covers the most data in the simplest fashion in the least ad hoc fashion etc that's probably sufficient stopping place there that's just illustrating that so Anthony Flew uh, obviously he was a very famous atheist philosopher in Britain and he, he in the last few years before he died uh, came to believe in some kind of a god but n- not the Christian god he was still kind of thinking about Christian- Christianity He's, he died uh, in this last year yeah. okay. but he said um, certainly given some beliefs about gods 
the, uh, the occurrence of the resurrection does become enormously more likely. And he also said that if you were thinking about a revelation, Christianity was clearly the one to beat, particularly because of the, the, the evidence about the resurrection. He said it was the, the, the best evidence of a miracle was the resurrection. It didn't convince him, but he said that was the kind of market leader. That was clearly the place to start looking if you were going to look for uh, a, uh, a revelation happening. Kind of a bit like David Hume. He was a Hume scholar as well. Um, so, yeah. Those are all making similar points. So there you go. Quick synopsis on, uh, on the resurrection.